Go ahead and swipe with me or turn with me to Luke 7, where we'll be in the text this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Luke 7, verse 18. <clears throat> During the offering time, we had a graphic on the screen behind me of ways to uh, give here at TCC, and they had online, and they had text, and then they had a plate option. <laughs> and I swear I saw that plate option, and I thought, that must be some new app, some bingo new plate thing. Of course, it's just the offering plate, and I, sheesh, I missed it. I missed it. But we're not going to miss Luke 7 this morning. I just want to read, beginning in verse 18, a bit of this, and then we'll pray. So let's hear from the word of the Lord, Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We adore you in Jesus Christ. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in your steadfast love, and you are good to all. And your mercy is over all that you have made, and even still, we confess to you today that when floods of trouble wash over us, our hearts turn away from your outstretched arms to other two-bit rescuers that maroon our joy on slowly sinking islands of delusions. Lord, forgive us. Lord, reassure us today that we may rest confidently in your presence only by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest in Jesus Christ over the house of God, let us, God, draw near to you with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And we ask now, Lord, that through your word, you stir us up to treasure Christ above all things. Love one another mightily. And to pursue with renewed vigor your good works. We pray this now, love struck. As the waiting bride pining for our returning groom. Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. 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 Well, if you've been reading along with us here, or if you've read Luke 7 before, or the entire book of Luke, you remember what's going on with Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He's the guy who takes on demons, right? He's the guy who heals lepers. He's the guy who calms storms. He's the guy who raises 
people from the dead. If you love those kind of stories, today's text is a bit of a detour. There's only one sentence about these miraculous things, and the rest is a more down-to-earth conversation. It may actually be more relatable to some of you because it deals with the idea of doubts that sometimes creep in. Let's just dive right into this text together. What I want to do is read through some of it, and then at the end we'll just stop for some reflections. So let's go ahead and read again from verse 18. Remember, this was the context is after Jesus has been seen healing and raising someone from the dead. Verse 18 says, Then the disciples of John reported all of these things to John, to him. There's a uh, swimming pool near my house, and this week it opened, right? So, of course, I took my kids there for opening day, and we were there, and they were there swimming. And I noticed they were playing a kid's game. I don't know the name of it, but it's the game where one person stands on the edge of the pool, and all the other kids line up here, and they have a communication. And if you say the wrong thing, then this person jumps in, and he chases you, right? So that was the game they were playing. And, and I was watching, and I noticed, unlike in my day, all the parents seemed to be about five or ten feet farther back than they were when I was a kid. And I was sitting there thinking, why do all the parents have their chairs scooted so far back? And then I realized it was because of devices, right? Every single person there had a device they were on, and they didn't want, you know, that guy with the cannonball that measures on the Richter scale, they didn't want that kid jumping in and splashing. And I, I indeed saw that. Uh, before at the same pool, someone jumped in and boom, you've seen that happen. Everybody jumps unexpectedly, ah, uncertain about what just happens, and they turn their head. Like, Why? What just happened? In Luke's text today, that's what's going on. Remember who Jesus was. Remember what he was doing. He's walking through Galilee, and he does this cannonball, miraculous power, healing the sick. And he follows that with a jackknife of raising a dead a kid to life. And everybody's just turning their head like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Especially John the Baptist. John the Baptist had some questions for Jesus. Look how he reacts when he hears unexpectedly about how Jesus has been acting. Look at verse 19. So John hears these things about how Jesus has been going around unexpectedly just dropping uh, just bombs of miraculous power. John reacts like this. John at this time is in prison by the way. He's a little south geographically of where Jesus is working, and he's in prison. And so John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord, and this is the question. He said, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 20, and so the men, the disciples, came to Jesus, and they said faithfully, John the Baptist sent us to you, and here's this question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, you might be surprised when you read this text to find out that Jesus isn't the only one in the ancient world who had disciples. John had his group of men that he was pouring into, trying to get them to the point where they feared and followed God. And when he heard about what Jesus was doing, he sends two of them. Now, it's significant. He doesn't send three. He doesn't send 14. He doesn't send one. He sends two to Jesus because in that culture, according to the Old Testament, you needed two witnesses. 
right? So he grabs two. You had to have two to verify truth. And so he sends exactly two to Jesus to find out what was going on through an informal interview of sorts. Now I want to zone in here on the lone question asked of Jesus in this entire text. Jesus is going to go on and he's going to ask himself uh, no less than seven questions today. In the text, Jesus has question after question after question after question, but only one real question is asked of Jesus. It's a two-part question. You see it there in verse 19. That's what we're going to focus on. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you really the coming one, our Messiah, the Savior of Israel, or shall we look for another? We're going to return to that question later, but for now, understand where John the Baptist is coming from. Again, recall what Jesus has been doing. He came and he was set apart at his baptism as the Holy One of Israel. Remember John the Baptist himself said, here's the Lamb of God, he's going to take away the sins of the whole world. And everybody was pumped up. And then, what did he do after that? He proclaimed that he was bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, if you say you're the coming king to a bunch of Jewish people, and you say you're going to take away the sins of the world, you had better deal with the pink elephant in a synagogue, right? And that is the Roman Empire. They were still oppressed, and yet Jesus said, I am the king, and I have come. And so John the Baptist is a little bit confused at this point because he's still in prison, right? It would be like this. Uh, this week I saw a poll. Just read this poll. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm not promoting it, whatever. But it's about... Trump's uh, first 100 days in office and his approval rating, right? So a bunch of people were polled. Here are, here are the answers that came out. Um, this is how many people favor him on his work in the economy, 47%. Terrorism, 45%. Immigration, 41%. Healthcare, 35%. So let's just pretend that you are one who are dissatisfied, like people in this poll, with how Trump is doing as president. And let's say in your party, someone stepped forward in your political party and they were, they were a rock star. They were a great candidate, man. They were, they were fiery. They were young. They were ready to go. They had all these ideas. And you said, I'm going to back you, right? You're my guy. We're going to take this down. We're going to win the next election. And over the next three years, this candidate never posed for a photo. They never hit the campaign trail. They never made a bumper sticker. They never even entered the primary. You would be thinking, man, you're such a great candidate and I support you, but you're not acting like any candidate that there ever has been. And this is the vibe that Jesus is now giving off. He said, I'm the king, but he's not acting like any king that has ever come. When he says, I'm the king, that's political talk, right? And he says, I'm going to rescue people from sin. There are certain expectations that come with that, but here's the problem. He's not performing the way everybody expected. There's no vertical climb for Jesus on the political ladder. And he's leading no army to overthrow Caesar. Instead, he's homeless. He's healing people. He's speaking to some small groups and some gatherings. Uh, he's going to parties. At the same time, he maintains this prophetic distance. 
He's just not performing and acting the way we would expect a king to act. So John the Baptist, who's the very guy who preceded Jesus and told everybody he's the Messiah, John the Baptist, even himself, is confused by what's going on. So he says, are you the coming one? Or, or shall I look for another? Now Jesus is going to answer him here in the next verse with both action and words. Pick it up in verse 21. This is Jesus. So in that hour, as an answer, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. That's part one of his answer. He acts. Part two, verse 22. And he also answered these messengers. And he said, go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, said Jesus. So, foregoing a direct answer, Jesus simply points to this big mess of mercy he's left in his wake. And he says, here's the evidence. You decide for yourself. Do you need another Savior? Because this is what I have done. He has providentially matched up his own acts with the expected Messiah that we see in texts like Isaiah 61 from the Old Testament. He's doing all that was expected of the coming deliverer. And so you can see Jesus stretching his arms out saying, you choose. Here's my evidence. Shall you look for another Savior or not? After this, John's messengers Take off, and Jesus turns and does some teaching here. He uses this as a teaching moment. Look at verse 24. So when John's messengers had gone, apparently they went back to John. He didn't scare them off. They went back to John. And Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's court. What then did you go see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, he was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. And so these questions are Jesus' way of confirming that John the Baptist is the messenger to escort in God's Messiah. To escort in the Savior. He was foretold in Malachi 3.1. And Jesus is emphatically saying through a bunch of questions. This is the man. This is the prophet. This is the herald that is proclaiming that God has arrived to save his people. And then Jesus makes a comparison. Verse 28. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. That sounds like double talk. Here's what he's talking about. Jesus lauds John as a great man. Great man, born of women. But then he puts John's role into perspective. John was a part of the old covenant system, which worked well for God's people. But when, when Jesus comes and brings the kingdom, everything changes. 
Everything is so much sweeter because the Spirit is coming in. The Son of God has arrived. So Jesus is making a role comparison between John's role and everybody who lives like us within the coming kingdom with the Spirit of God. And it's important to note that Jesus and John shared the same message with a message of redemption, with a message of faith and repentance, and they both were rejected. At this point, Luke begins to shift his focus and turn our attention toward the reaction of people who hear the teachings of Jesus. How do people react when they hear the gospel, either from John the Baptist or Jesus? Now Jesus is going to address that in verse 29. He gives a parenthetical statement here. And he says in verse 29, When all the people heard this, this is the teaching of Jesus, and the tax collectors too, They declare God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So now Luke presents a group of people. There's the common people and the tax collectors. Who are the tax collectors? They were the biggest sinners around, right? So when they heard the gospel, when they heard the truths about Jesus, your ordinary people and your tax collectors, they repented. They took part in John's baptism, which was to say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I fall short of God, so I repent. These people who repented, when they hear Jesus talk, they see that he is the Savior. They see that God is just in seeing Jesus. But there are others there. Verse 30. There are the Pharisees and the lawyers. These are the religious leaders, right? They are there, and they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John, by him. These are the people who heard about faith in Christ, the coming Messiah. They heard about repentance, and they refused. They said, no, I don't need that. This isn't enough for me. I don't trust that he is the Lamb of God, and I don't need to repent. So you see the reactions of two different people here in the text. And then Jesus is going to go on and make a comparison here. It's really tricky, but we're going to walk through it. Jesus compares... um, the people who reject him, this generation of leaders who reject Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to say something metaphorically about them here, beginning in verse 31. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? And here's the comparison, verse 32. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Now, what in the world does that mean? That doesn't clear it up. That makes it more muddy, right? Well, let's understand it. What's a dirge anyway? That's a song that you would sing at a funeral. Okay, so here's the picture that Jesus wants you to get here. It would would work well in that culture. In this culture, it has to uh, be explained a little bit. But but picture this. Let's say out in the parking lot or out in your backyard or in a cul-de-sac, you found a group of children playing, right? Imagine one group of children, a little bit younger children, and they're playing pretend over here, right? And they're pretending that they're a family, and they're playing family, and they're having a wedding. So somebody's pretending to be the bride and the groom, and they they need some more people to make their pretend imagination scene work well. They need people to dance at the wedding. So they walk over, a little bitty girl walks over to a group of older kids. They're a little older, they're a little cooler. And she says, hey, we're playing pretend over here. 
We need, some, we need some dancers at the wedding. Will you play with us? And maybe you've seen this a hundred times. I was the youngest kid in my family, so, oh. The older kids are like, that's lame. We're not playing that game. So the younger kids go back over here. They begin to play some more. They're still playing family. And then they come to another scene where a family member has died. And so a girl walks back over to the big kids and says, we're playing family and somebody has died. We need somebody to sing a morning song and to weep when we pretend. Will you come play with us? And the older kids, you know, they're like, it's just not cool, man. We're not playing that. And so she goes back rejected to her group of younger kids. That's the picture Jesus wants you to get. It's a picture of invitation and of rejection. Invitation and rejection. That's what Jesus is saying. How can I compare this generation of leaders? Well, they're people who heard the truth and they just rejected it. Out of hand, they stiff-armed the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It becomes clear in verse 33. Jesus explains that they heard it. They heard the message. They heard the gospel in two different ways. One was from John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was an ascetic. That means he didn't go much for the material things in life. Okay, maybe people want to hear the gospel from somebody like that. Jesus says in verse 33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Maybe you'll accept him. Instead, you say he has a demon. Verse 34, well, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he came eating and drinking. Maybe you'll accept him. But you said, no, look at him. He's just a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus finishes his little mini-sermon here in verse 35 by saying, wisdom is justified by all of her children. As if to say, in the end, we'll see who's wise. You people who reject the Messiah or the common man, the tax collectors who uh, accept him. And that finishes up the text for today. Now, having explored it and explained it, I just want to walk through it and pause now for reflection. This is the part where you zero your heart in and you try to take something out. Try to catch what the Spirit of God has given you through this text. And what I want to do is zero in on John the Baptist's initial question that prompted this whole sermon from Jesus. Remember what it was? His question was, shall I look for another? Shall I look for another Savior? And I want you to see yourself in this question. One way to do that is put yourself in the shoes of different people within the story, okay? One group of one group of people you might identify best with here, some of you can align yourself with the Pharisees and the lawyers. They're people that have said to have rejected the purpose of God in Jesus. Specifically, maybe you hear the good news that we're talking about here and you turn away from it. Maybe you weigh Jesus on the scales of your own reason. And you simply find he doesn't suit your taste. It's like a taste test where you stand above different things that might work for you. And Jesus is one of them. And you're like, it's not what I prefer. And you keep going. You turn to look for another savior. And maybe you revise, uh, you've resolved to place your hope in activism. Right? Many in our society have found that fulfilling. Or maybe you're going to trust in the morality of men. Or maybe science is your queen. 
Or you've decided if there's any God at all, he has to be unknowable and unattainable at best. At worst, he's responsible for a huge mess in this world because there's a lot of pain here. Maybe that's the way you think. And to you, we could respond with a lot of philosophical arguments today. But in the book of Luke, Jesus responds in a very frank way. Jesus says, in the words of one professor, any hopes that leave out the bloody cross and neglect the empty tomb will damn. They will condemn. To the point, Jesus later says, if you continue to reject me, you will be brought down to Hades. He uses the picture of a tree. He said, you're just like a tree that's only good for firewood. You're going to be chopped down. And eventually you're going to be burned. The strong words from Jesus. Why does he say that? Well, Jesus is the Holy One of God. And when we reject him, we're saying something is better than him, right? And we're offending the holiness of our Creator God. And there's no greater sin than this. This is the epitome of evil. And so it is just for God to punish those who turn away from him. It is just for God to condemn all of those who are looking and have found a lesser Savior. But the good news is, Jesus holds hope out to you. In fact, he offers nothing less than himself this morning. You're not the first to reject him, after all. He was rejected in his life by enemies and friends alike. And he can handle it. He offers life to all who will follow him. And he offers proof to all who would say, I doubt you. Jesus would say, like he says in the sermon, he would say, come and dance with me. Come and sing with me. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Compare me to other saviors. You will find them wanting and you will find me supreme. The offer is still on the table from Jesus, even today. Your search can be over. You can come and trust in Jesus Christ. Come to him and embrace him as your Savior. That's one group of people here in the text today. But I suspect, I suspect most of you here today would better identify with John the Baptist, right? Most of us might better identify with John the Baptist in the story. Most of you, in fact, decided to follow Jesus either in your teens or your 20s. But you still might ask the question, shall I look for another? You might just ask it in a different way, in a hidden, subtle way. Shall I look for another? You see, John was prompted by his circumstances. He felt compelled to come to Jesus and say, are you for real? Shall I look for another? I thought you were a different kind of savior. I yearn and I burn for change in my life and it's still not happening. Shall I look for another type of God? This story illustrates some of our deepest heart impulses. As we grow in our life, we begin to find out many of us have broken dreams. Things just aren't working out exactly the way we thought they would. My brother is still an unbeliever. I thought if I prayed for him after a while, 
he would actually turn him to God. But he still, after seven years of praying to you on my knees every day, he's still not believing. Shall I find another Savior? Well, you would hope Jesus would have given you a storybook marriage, right? You thought that's the way it worked. You trust him. He gives you this great marriage, and yet your marriage is far from it. Christ has the power to give you the job, the home, the bank balance that would ensure your financial peace. But he's chosen not to do it. Shall I look for another Savior? Uh, The deal was, in your mind, if you served and you trusted and you prayed, when you raised your kids, they would have stellar character, right? Excelling in all the arts and athletics, always polite, no behavior problems, full of faith, trusting in God with pure hearts. That was the deal. And now their hearts are more captured by video games. And it seems like their faith might even be a house of cards that they've made just to please you. Shall I look for another Savior? If God has the power to overcome sickness, why is my mom sitting here with this debilitating disease? Why do I have to watch her suffer? Do I want a Savior like this, or shall I look for another? You see how these questions are real, right? You can almost feel the pain in John the Baptist's voice. On top of all of these struggles, we have the own struggles uh, at looking The struggle of looking at our own performance and failures. As you reflect on John the Baptist, maybe you can relate to this author. I read this week a story about author Vanitha Risner. And she was preparing for Easter and she was reading through the Passion account. And she began to see each other. I mean, she she began to see herself in each character within the Passion story. And she said this. She said, as I look at my own life, I realize that I'm no different than those men in the story. I I do things I regret. I make bad decisions. I hurt people I love. And when I do, I'm faced with the same choices that the men in the Gospels face. I see parts of myself in Pontius Pilate, Judas Iscariot, Simon Peter. And today you may see parts of yourself in John the Baptist because your life, your career, your marriage, your kids... Your house, your relationships, your own accomplishments haven't worked out the way you've planned. You're full, in fact, of broken dreams. Your response is not only to ask, like John the Baptist did, but you find your heart running after other saviors. But here's a key point. I hope you write this down. Your broken dreams don't cause your brokenness. They actually reveal it. Right? Your broken dreams don't cause your brokenness. They simply reveal it. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, this tax season, uh, I was talking to my accountants, and something happened that you never want to happen. There was a miscommunication. They, they misestimated my tax payment. Right? And not only that, uh, I was talking to IRS, and the IRS had a company that they used to withdraw quarterly payments. And as I was dialoguing with that company, it turns out they also had made a mistake. And to compound it all, 
I'm the one who's supposed to be aware of these things, and I hadn't caught this mistake. And so, to my surprise, when I got uh, my prepared return, my tax bill, if you would, I opened it up, and there was a lump sum that was much bigger than I was expecting. Money that I had going here, 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 and here actually had to go to Uncle Stan. And philosophically, I'm fine with paying taxes. That's not the point. The point is, when I opened that bill, my heart was like a dog on a leash at a cat parade, right? It's just tugging, 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 tugging. Finally, it broke loose. Chased after many other saviors in that moment. It was the ones that I perceived that could best help my immediate calamity, right? That's what happens when my heart. But that brokenness did not cause that. That messed up situation, it didn't cause it. It just revealed my own brokenness in myself, in my soul. I was chatting with Pastor Sean this week, and he reminded me that we are all unbelievers all of the time. We're all unbelievers all of the time. What I mean by that is we're still consumed, we're still attached to a sin nature. Even after the Holy Spirit is residing in us and we have hope, we have security, and we have a great God, we're a child of God, we're still, in some senses, unbelievers all of the time. That means we're going to long after other, smaller flimsy saviors. And many of us, when your dreams get broken, you tend to stomp around. <clears throat> Anger is your response, right? Because you believe the lie that if you're able to pay somebody back, this will feel so satisfying to get revenge, right? If I can just, oh, somebody made a mistake against me? Oh, you know, you think anger is going to satisfy you when a dream gets broken. One author writes about the precariousness of this situation. I love this quote. Listen to it. He writes, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of the bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, however, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's because getting revenge won't save you. It will, in fact, destroy you tossing you deeper and deeper under the coming waves of the wrath of God because your heart is going after false savior after false savior. Famous pastor John Owen, he called these longings for another savior, he called them rightly and biblically lust. He said, you have lust in your heart. Listen to what he said. When a lust has remained a long time in the heart, corrupting, festering, and poisoning it brings the soul into a woeful condition. Such a lust will make a deep imprint on the soul. It will make its company a habit in your affections. It will grow so familiar in your mind and conscience that they are not disturbed at its presence as some strange thing. 
It will so take advantage in such a state that it will often exert itself without you even taking notice of it at all. And get this. Unless a serious course, an extraordinary course is taken, a person in this state has no grounds to expect that his latter end shall be peace. Did you get that? Unless a serious course, an extraordinary course is taken, a person in this state has no grounds to expect that his latter ends shall be peace. The actual peace that you're striving for when you lust after something else will not be delivered. But your gospel hope this morning is that a serious and extraordinary course was taken by God in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. Your lust and your shattered dreams, they're just a fragment of the greater broken world. And recall how Jesus answered John's question. So key. He's talking of his sufficiency for us. He basically sows his own saving acts into the fabric of the Old Testament expectations of the Savior. He says by pointing out his acts of mercy and spiritual deliverance, he's saying, I'm exactly the kind of Savior that Isaiah said you need. May not be what you think you need. May not be what you forecast for yourself. May not be who you thought I was going to be. But I am you need. I'm repairing all of creation. Right? Look at that blind man. For the first time in his life, when you look at him, he's going to look back. Because now he sees. Look at the shriveled leper. Now his skin is as smooth as silk. The deaf can hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the good news. Shall you look for another Savior? No! That's Jesus. I'm all that you need. I'm the Alpha and the Omega and all the letters in between. I am the one who has come for you. There's only one worthy to open the scroll of God. It is the Lamb of God. You don't trade in the morning star for one you know will fall. You take Jesus because he's proved himself to be sufficient to meet all of your Knees. He's healing a broken world. There it is. There's the proof. There's the proof. There's the proof. There's the proof. Trust that He will heal you. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. At this point in the text, you can almost hear John the Baptist in his heart potentially raise the objection, just interject, saying, Yes, I see how you've healed others. But what about me? I'm still in prison here, right? What about my life? I get it. I intellectually understand what you've done in history and with all of the people that I talk to. I get these testimonies. But what about my own misery? That's where I need you the most, right? Because my marriage is still broken and it's messed up. If I had a car that ran like this, I would get rid of it. Trade it in. You're asking me to trust you? Even as things remain broken? It's a legit question, isn't it? And it's one probably that all of you have asked, and it's the one that the gospel answers. We were talking recently about this in our elders' meeting, 
And, and then the truth came up that's so precious, and here it is. It's that Christ is often providing for our deepest desires to be satisfied, even in the midst of the bleakest circumstances. He's giving you the salvation you need, even through and in the midst of your darkest circumstances. It was about this time last year when my father passed away. And over the, I've had about 12 months now to think through this and process this and work through all the grief. And I remember, and I can now say, I don't know if I could say then, but I can now say after some reflection that God has been saving me all throughout this time, even as I have failed to realize it. For instance, what is my deep need when I'm missing my father? Well, simply, you know, I long for a dad. I long for a father to be here. But don't miss the point in the gospel that says God, the loving father, has sent his son Jesus to come and make adoption happen so that you will be brought into a heavenly family. And you will have a father who is all that my earthly father could only reflect and only hope to be. Now, I'm in communion in a deeper way with my heavenly father that I never was when my earthly father was living. That's the salvation working out. What else do I yearn for? Well, I, I miss my dad because I yearn for wisdom. I want somebody to turn to and just ask, hey, what do I do about this? I'm confused a lot. I want to make some decisions here. I want the wisdom of a father. Let's not neglect the wisdom in Jesus Christ that God has given us. Oh, the purpose that I have when I turn towards the mission of Christ. Things seem to clarify. When I turn to Jesus, I see the wisdom in how to live, both ethically and in ultimate purpose things. I see clarified in Jesus. He is the wisdom of God. My deepest needs are being satisfied in Christ. When I miss my dad, I'm, I'm sometimes consumed with a sense of injustice. I know you feel this. I know you feel this when something big happened. Why does my dad have to die like this when I see other fathers still living? Right? I ask that question. That's not right, is it? But don't forget, in the gospel, we see this wrong righted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which says all who follow Jesus will one day live, not just for 70 years, but for a million years times a trillion. Forever, life will be given to my Father. The wrongs of death will be righted in the victory of Jesus Christ when he returns. This is the gospel, the saving word that's at work right now, even in the midst of my misery over the past year, in the midst of grief. God has been there saving me. On and on I could go on these things, but we must discipline ourselves. This is an act of faith. We must discipline ourselves to trust that God is working on deeper levels than you can understand as he begins to save us and continues to save us even in the midst of life's darkest trials. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Cal Porter. <coughs> Cal Porter is not famous, but a lot of people have heard his story. Uh, he's a golf writer for CBS. Uh, Kyle is in his early 30s. He's married. He's got a couple kids. And Kyle Porter holds Jesus as his Savior. And he'll tell you, you know, I have never regretted following Jesus. 
But he's always had a particular attraction to some of his pastor's wisdom. He said, my pastor said to me one time something, and it stuck with me. My pastor said, your life can change with just a phone call. You are not exempt. And Kyle has always maintained that attitude. And it was at the very beginning of 2016 when Kyle and his wife Jen were pregnant with a third child. They found out about 36 weeks into the pregnancy that their child had died. And their child became the one in every 115 babies that are born, stillborn. And Kyle later wrote this about his broken dream. This is what he wrote. He said, for a lot of us, myself included, Christianity had become easy. There'd been no suffering. There'd been no pain. There'd been a few questions. But there's no reason not to trust God and not to call ourselves Christians. But now, after death, there is. Now we have known unimaginable depths. The sorrow that flowed that week is an unspeakable thing. And we can truthfully say the Lord is good in both the joy and the sorrow, if not greater in the sorrow. I want you to hear that. The Lord is good in joy and sorrow, if not greater in the sorrow. That was what we tried to point out to others all week long, that we do not hope in our children. That we do not hope in each other. That we do not hope in our friends and our families or anything outside the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's all. In Christ alone. This death was a wild reminder of that. One that we didn't want, but we always need. My friend Nathan said that until that week, loving the Lord amid sorrow this deep was only a theory for many of us. Putting a baby in the ground makes it real. If I'm honest with myself, this is a good thing for me. Would I choose this path? Never. Would I choose any part of it for myself or anyone I've ever met in my life? No. But it is ultimately good for me and my family, and that's a really difficult thing for me to admit. This is why I say we lost a child and gained everything, because Christ is everything or he is nothing. We lost so much, but we gained so much more. We got so much more of the Lord than we ever had before. We got more of the Lord than I knew was possible for a human to ever get. You see, the broken dream that Kyle was being saved from was the most vicious foe of all. It was the false hope of other saviors. Kyle said, I was tempted to hope in something physical and material and through tragedy that I would never wish on anyone, God was saving me. God was proving himself the ultimate, singular, only savior of my soul. If it weren't for such broken dreams, Kyle may have never realized that only Christ is worthy to wear the title Savior. That's the question I want you to walk out of here with today. Shall you look for another? There will be times when you doubt, when things seem hopeless. Shall you look for another Savior then, or shall you cling, like Kyle, to the one Savior who can actually deliver you through his death and resurrection? That's Jesus Christ.
because the hope of this text and the rest of the book of Luke is that only he will deliver. Let's pray.